Uh, before we do, I read this story this morning. Uh, a pastor's little boy said to him one day, he said, Daddy, I notice every Sunday morning when you first come out to preach, you sit down and you bow your head. Said, what are you doing? The father explains, he says, well, son, I'm asking the Lord to give me a good sermon. The little boy replies, well, then why doesn't he? Um, on that note, Lord, I just pray this morning, God, you'd open up our ears, open up our eyes, open up our hearts, Father, to hear what the Holy Spirit would be saying to each and every one of us, God. Lord, touch us, change us, conform us into the image of your Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Amen. So the last few weeks we've been looking at the issue of possession and taking possession of that which is ours. In Joshua 21, verse 43, it says this. It says, So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave to Israel all this land that they had sworn, that God had sworn to them, this promise that God had given to them. He gave them all this land. But there's a second part to this. He says that they had to go and take possession of it. So there's two things happening here. There's God giving a promise to the nation of Israel. And the second part is that the nation of Israel had to go and possess that promise and take it. And we've been looking over the last couple of weeks at this whole issue of receiving a promise from God, receiving something from God that we can take to the bank. God has some wonderful promises for us, inclusive promises in his word that include all of us. And then there are those exclusive promises where God comes and speaks a word to you personally about your situation or your circumstance or whatever. And when God comes and he gives us a word or he gives us a promise, that's not always the end of it. We then need to learn how do we actually go and take possession of that which God has for us. It's an interesting concept when we talk about the will of God. And I'm not talking about the will of God today per se. But it's an interesting idea when you do a, a bit of a study through the Bible and you look at the will of God. The will of God for the world will always come to pass. God has a time frame that he works on. And God will do what he will. But there will always be a beginning of the world and there will always be an end. There was always going to be the first coming of Christ and there will be a second coming. There's a history of the world that is mapped out by God that will come to pass. It's God's history and it will happen. But we see in the word of God, and we probably experience in our own lives, and probably in many ways that we don't even realize, where the will of God personally doesn't always come to pass because God is not impatient. God waits. A uh, classic example would be uh, a king. For Israel, when Israel came to God and said, we want to have a king. If you look at the Bible narrative, it's pretty clear it wasn't God's first idea to have a king. God wanted Israel to be led by the prophets who would hear his voice. He would speak, they would speak to the nation and the nation would be led that way. The nation said to, they came to the prophet uh, Samuel, I think it was, and they said, look, we want a king like the other nations. We, we know that this is how we're being led by prophets in the world. But, you know, all the other nations have got military leaders who put on their armor and their suits and pick up their swords and go to fight for them and slay the enemy. We want, we want that. And it actually says that God wasn't necessarily happy with this, but he said, right now, if that's what you want, then here it is. Which poses the question, was it the highest will of God that Israel ever have a king? We can debate that. But the point is, God wasn't necessarily happy with that. 
You know, 2 Peter 3, 9, it says that it's God's will that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. Is everybody in the course of human history coming to repentance? I dare say no. So is the will of God coming to pass in every individual person's life? I don't want to debate it, but I'm fairly set on the fact that it's not. If somebody dies without repenting and getting their heart right before God, I don't believe that's the highest will of the Father. So does the will of God always come to pass? Again, I don't want to get into that. But the point is this. Just because God says something or promises something, we still have a place to participate in that. There's still a process whereby we lay a hold of that which God himself laid a hold of us for. Um, God gives to us, but we take possession. One of the problems that we have in the church is that we think just because God has given something, that's all there is to it. And so we don't think about or factor in or ask God or look at the word of God. And so what position, where do I, you know, when I go for a surf, I like to, 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 well, I haven't done it for years now since the sharks started biting people's legs off. But I used to, when I was younger, love surfing. And the amazing thing about surfing is you know the wave is going to come in. The waves are always coming. They don't stop. But if I'm going to catch that wave, I used to have to get on a board, paddle out the back. I've got to get myself in a certain position. And I don't know how many times uh, I would be sitting over here and grumbling and looking, thinking there's no waves, there's no waves. And then you look over here and there's just a, a set coming through every 10 seconds and everybody's over here surfing and I'm over here by myself getting nothing. And it's not that there's no waves to be had. The waves are there. I just didn't position myself in the right spot to catch those waves when they came. And when we talk about taking possession, it's, it's, it's a similar thing. We're talking about positioning ourselves so that those promises can come to pass. When those promises come, we're in the right place and we can take advantage of those because God has some amazing things to give to us. I feel like sometimes, especially in the West, because we have so many other things to hang our hats on, we are less reliant on God and his promises and his word. But when you get to travel to some of these underdeveloped and developing nations, they have nothing but God to hang their hat on. And we sit back over here and we marvel at the things that God does in those nations and amongst those people. And we stand in awe and we hear the stories and, and we, we cry out and say, God, why isn't it happening here? God, why do you do all this amazing and you don't hear? And I think the bottom line is that there's much more dependence on God in some of these places because they haven't been trained and they don't have the opportunity to hang their hat on so many other things, whereas we do. We have so many other things we can go to, places we go to for guidance, for decision-making, for relational advice. There's so many other places that we go to and we probably don't go to God as often as what we would if we had nothing else to go to. But in God's economy, in the eternal scheme of things... We can either use that as an excuse or we can just recognize it and go, okay, I'm not going to use that as an excuse. I need to make some choices, position myself, go to God. There are some great things that God has for me, things he's promised me. There are things in the word of God and I want to lay hold of all of them. I don't want to be a six-cylinder car running on four cylinders because I just can't be bothered repairing the two that are damaged. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of us live our lives. We, we're running on four cylinders instead of six and the answers are here. God's got answers for us. God wants us to be running on all six. He wants us to, to maximize and lay hold of everything that he's given to us so that we can reflect him fully and completely to the world around us. 
So that's what we're talking about when we talk about taking possession. Last week we had a look at, at the first thing uh, that I think we need to know about taking possession and that is that we need to know what's ours. So if you didn't hear that last week, it's on... It's on um, uh, geez, I'm, I'm so technologically... Uh, iTunes, that's it. Who said that? Who said that? Is that you? Okay, iTunes. You get on there and have a listen to that. But the first thing is, if we don't know something is ours, we won't claim it. If we don't know something belongs to us, we won't go and take it. This word is so full of things that God has promised to us, things that God has said to us, things that are there for us. But if we don't know what's ours, we won't take possession of it. Last week, I threw out the whole idea of lost superannuation. And I, I, I was mucking around with my figures and I didn't quite have them right, but it's something like $60 billion in lost superannuation in this country. And then when I googled this area, um, the, the Ganelaba area, it came up like something like uh, $6 million in this postcode. $6 million of lost superannuation. Is it lost? No, it's not. We know exactly where it is. It's not lost, it's just unclaimed. It's sitting there waiting for the rightful owners to take possession of that which is already theirs. And the word of God is like that. There are so many things in there that God has for us that he has given to us that he wants us to know about. And until we know about them, we will never take possession of them. There are so many situations and problems we deal with and God has answers in his word. But we scratch our head going, you don't know how to handle this. Yet God has answers and God has solutions. So the first thing is we need to know what sounds. The second thing we need to know about taking possession is we need to then choose to believe God. Choose to believe God. Now, I didn't say choose to believe in God. I didn't say choose to believe in God. How many of you know that many people profess to believe in God? There's a difference between believing in God and actually believing God. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it's impossible impossible to please God. That's a, that's a startling statement. That's a really, really bold statement. When I look at that statement, a question comes to mind and I say to myself, if it's impossible to please God without faith, what am I doing in my world right now that requires faith? Because I want to please God. What am I doing in my life right now that requires faith? Where am I putting myself out there whereby, God, you need to come through or maybe I'll fall on my face here? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then he goes on and expands on what's, what's this faith we're talking about here? And he says, this is it. Without faith, it's impossible to please God for he who comes to God must believe that A, he is. And that B, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So the faith that pleases God has two components to it. Number one is we need to believe that God exists. But secondly, we need to also believe that God rewards those who put him first. God rewards those who seek him. So we have a God who not only exists, but a God who is involved. And that's what true biblical faith is. It's a believing in a God who exists, but also believing in a God who is involved. If I was to ask you this question, is God involved in your world today? With confident assurance, coming out from the depth of your spirit, could you say yes and amen to that? 
or you're still not quite sure, still not 100% certain, still not quite sold on that. I mean, I believe God is there. I know he's there. And maybe I'm in awe of him and, or fear him or whatever. I know he's there. But him wanting to reward those who seek after him, him wanting to be not just existent but be involved, I mean, that's a different level. Yet that's the kind of faith, the Bible says, that pleases God. It's a faith that believes in his existence and a faith that believes in his involvement. Psalm 27, 13 says this, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have lost heart. I would have got depressed. I would have got flat. I would have lost my joy. I would have lost a whole bunch of things about me if I didn't have faith and believe that this side of heaven, God is capable of doing things. God is capable of manifesting himself and revealing himself to me. God is capable of helping me this side of heaven. Not just I'm saved and now I'm, I'm, when I die, I'll go to heaven and then I'll reap all the benefits of salvation. There are benefits here now. There are things that God has for us now. But on the inside of us in our spirit, have we settled that issue? Do we believe in that kind of a God? Because that's the God that the Bible talks about. Biblical faith calls us to more than just a belief in God's existence. It calls us to a belief in God's involvement. It's one thing to believe God exists, as a lot of people do. It's another to believe you'll see his goodness revealed to you this side of heaven. Yet that is the faith that pleases God. Anyone ever seen the Angry Birds movie? Anyone seen it? If you're laughing, you probably haven't, because it really wasn't that funny. You have? I, I, I went and saw the Angry Birds film with, um, with Chloe. Me and her went to the movie sometime back to watch the Angry Birds. And, and uh, I, won't, I, won't, I won't give you my, my ranking and rating of the film. Um, but uh, it depends who you ask. You ask Chloe. She went home and raved about how funny and fantastic it was. And I just went home and was quiet. But um, <laughs> there, is some, there are some really, really phenomenal things in the film. But there's a, a, basically there is these birds that live down here on this, this plateau. And they've got this eagle, I think it's like a big eagle, that, that, that is kind of like their God. He, he protects them and they feel safe and he's there to rescue them and so on. And he lives up on the top of a high, high mountain. And there's some stuff going on down here on the Angry Bird Plain. And so these birds decide we're going to climb on up and we're going to see this, this God, we're going to see this, this saviour, we're going to see the eagle, the protector, the provider, the great one. And so they begin this journey and they climb up this mountain and they get up the top, and I'm, I, 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 I'll let you. I'll give you a window into my sense of humour. The funniest scene in the whole film. They were swimming around in this pool. Right at the top of the cave, there's a big pool, and it's at the entrance where the eagle comes in. And the pool is called the Sea of Wisdom. And so they're jumping in it, and they're swimming around, and they're drinking the water and spitting it, and having a wonderful time. And then all of a sudden, the eagle walks out, and they oh, and they cower and they hide behind a rock, and they look. And he walks over to the edge of the cliff, and he looks down. And then he begins to relieve himself into the pool of wisdom. And one of them says, what? This is not the pool of wisdom. It's more like the pool of whiz. (laughs) Which I thought was very funny. I must admit. (laughs) Exactly right. God is not like that. When they get up there and they get to know this eagle, he turns out to be this self-centered, egotistical, un inspiring, uncaring creature. And they've been down here thinking he was this, but when they get there, he's absolutely everything that is the opposite. 
and doesn't care less about the angry birds and what's going on in their world. In the end, he does the typical movie thing and flips it around and becomes the, the hero, which is a beautiful thing. But you know, God is not like that. But it's amazing how many of us kind of have that mentality that, that God is up there and, and he, he gets our attention and we get saved and then he just sits on the chair, folds his arms and says, I'll see you when you get up here. You, just do, you deal with down there an angry person, an angry bird world, with whatever you've got to deal with. I'm just going to sit up here in my cave and enjoy myself, have a good time, and I'll see you when you get up here. But that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God that Scripture portrays to us. That is not the one. Jesus' death on the cross reconciled us back to the Father. His death was about reconnecting us back up with God. But his life, the life that he lived, he was a visible representation of the invisible God. Now, how many of you know when Jesus was here, he was involved in the world? He was involved in human affairs. When he saw a sick person, he didn't just sit down and go, well, you just deal with that and one day you're going to get to heaven and there will won't be any sickness in heaven, but you just ride, ride the wave out now. He didn't see people who were oppressed by the devil and go, well, gee, look at that really under the thumb there. He's under the hammer. Look at that dude. They've got to chain him, but I'm just going to sit back here. My word to him is this. You just suck it up, princess, and one day you'll make it up to heaven and I'll see you when you get up there. He got involved in the affairs of mankind. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He fed the hungry. He did all that stuff as a representation of the invisible God. So Jesus got involved in the affairs of humanity. Jesus responded to the heart cry of human beings, of people that would come to him with needs. He practically did something and responded. And that's the God that we worship. Faith is this. It believes in the existence of God, but it also believes in the involvement of God. I'm not talking about having faith in the existence of God, but faith in the involvement of God. Who is God to you? Does he just sit there with his arms folded in a chair? Or is he interested enough in your life to do things? We need to believe God, cultivate an attitude in our hearts where we make the decision to believe God. It's one thing to know the promises of God, but will we believe the promises of God? You know what helps you believe what somebody says? The more you get to know them. The more you get to know a person, the more you learn whether you can or cannot trust the words of that individual. The more we get to know God, the more we take him at his word, the more we begin to understand, you know what? His promises are his ironclad agreements to us. We can take the promises of God to the bank because God honors his word. God does what he says. That's the God that we serve. In Luke chapter 7, we've got this really interesting story about a Roman centurion. And it goes like this. We've heard this story a thousand times. It says, now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. So along come these teachers of the law, these people, and they get in the ear of Jesus and they go, this guy needs help and he deserves it. He deserves your help. 
How many of you know none of us deserve God's help? Don't deserve it. That's what makes God so incredibly wonderful and so incredibly unhuman. <laughs> the Bible says he gives rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. They came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation and he's built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, verse 6, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. So he's got a different opinion of himself than the rest of these people do. He says, I'm not worthy. They're going there telling you, do this for me because I'm worthy. The man says, you know what? If you're basing on a worthiness, nothing's going to happen for me because I know I'm not worthy and I'm humble enough to admit that. I am not worthy of this. He says, therefore, because of that, I didn't even think myself worthy enough to come to you. Watch this, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And watch his description. He goes on, he says, For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say, I say to one, go. And he thinks about it for a while. And then tries to work out in his head whether what I'm saying is correct. And he makes a decision based on how he's feeling. Oops, sorry, I haven't got my glasses on. It doesn't actually say that. My mistake, sorry people, I'm, I'm really got the wrong path here. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he thinks about it for a second. Weighs it up, the pros and the cons. Tries to rationally work it out, whether it will actually make sense. Is this really going to achieve what you say it's going to achieve? And then if he feels like it, Oh, sorry, it's the eyes again. It doesn't say that. My bad. I must remember to wear them next week. He says to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Literally means he stood in admiration. When Jesus heard this from the centurion, he stood in admiration. How awesome. Wouldn't you love to be the person that Jesus stands in admiration of? I think that's a beautiful, beautiful picture. The one that we admire so much, standing, looking at you, going, you know what? I admire you. I'm in admiration of your faith, of your belief, of your trust in me. He stood in admiration. He turned around and he said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Of all the stories of faith in the New Testament, of all the people Jesus encountered, he highlighted this man's faith as being the greatest type of faith that he had come across. The greatest type of faith that he had encountered. And it was faith based on what? Based on a word. Based on a word. In other words, what this man was saying back to Jesus was, I know how this works. When somebody in higher authority than you says something, that's it. If I tell my servant to go, he goes. Why? Because somebody in greater authority told him to. If I tell someone to come here, they come. Why? Because if somebody in greater authority tells you to come, you come. He says, I'm under authority. 
So if those above me tell me to do something, I do that too. He says, I understand authority. And Jesus says, wow, this is amazing, amazing faith. I stand in awe at your understanding of faith. And I'm going to point it out forever and a day till Christ comes back. I'm going to make sure that it's repeated in the word of God so everybody knows what this amazing, amazing faith looks like. And it's a man taking God at his word. Why? Because God is a higher authority. Jesus is a higher authority than sickness. Jesus is a higher authority than debt. He's a higher authority than anything we can think of. And in this situation, Jesus was a higher authority than any sickness or disease upon this, ser- this, this servant. So when Jesus says a word, this guy says that settles it because this is a higher authority than anything else. The word of God has promises for you. Firstly, we need to know what they are. Secondly, we need to choose to believe them. And it is a choice. It's a choice. And it's not always easy, but it needs to be done. We need to build our spiritual muscle, build our faith muscle, by making the right choices to believe God in the different situations and circumstances of life where we find ourselves in. If I could give you a basic definition of biblical faith, it would be this. Faith is choosing to take God at his word. Simplest way I can put it. It's choosing to take God at his word. In other words, God says it, that settles it. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to take it to the bank. This is the faith that lays a hold of the promises of God and that takes possession of everything that God has for us. Until we learn to know what the promises are, we know what God has for us, and until we choose to believe them. See, some of us are sitting back, we're waiting for light bulb moments. You know, we're waiting for the, the, the finger-written note in the sky or the angelic appearance. Or We're, we're thinking if we just have that clash of, of, of symbols and that big miracle, from that moment on I'll be transformed and changed and I will believe everything God says. It's never worked like that. It doesn't get any better than having the plagues of Egypt... And walking out of that nation carrying all the gold and silver and underpants and shirts and jackets you can. It doesn't get any better than that. And then standing in front of an ocean and having it part. And walking through on dry ground and looking back and saying you're in it. It doesn't get any better than that. And then to have a literal pillar of fire at night time leading you around. And it doesn't get much better than that. You can have all the magical, miraculous light bulb moments in the world and still not believe God. The disciples who had spent time with Christ had seen him do miracles and all this sort of stuff. One day they get on a boat and Jesus says to them, let's get on this boat, we are going to the other side. He promised them, we're going to the other side. They get on, a storm whips up. The wind comes, the wave comes, the boat starts rocking. They start whinging, crying, they kick him, they wake him up and they start accusing him and going, don't you care that we are perishing? I mean, look at all the stuff, the light bulb moments, the clanging cymbals, all that stuff that happened and yet they're still sitting there going, but you don't care for us, we're going to die. So it doesn't matter about all the experiences in the world. I know people. I know people who have had physical, angelic visitations of Christ who still choose to walk away from God, who still choose not to trust God. Because faith comes back to a choice. The choice becomes easier the more I get to know the person who made the promise. The more I get to know you, the easier it is to make the choice to trust you, but it's still a choice nonetheless. It's a choice. And faith comes back to a choice. Israel believed in God, but they didn't always choose to believe God. 
and it doesn't matter what we go through or what miracle things happen, the light bulb moment is not what we're waiting for. What God is waiting for and what we're waiting for is to make a conscious choice. This is how I'm going to live my life. I want everything God has for me, and that's only going to happen by believing, knowing what he has for me, and secondly, choosing to believe that what he says settles it. What he says settles it. This morning, I felt there was a couple of people here, and you're struggling with, with guilt and stuff and shame. You know, the word of God says, if you confess your sins to him, he'll forgive you, and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That is a promise for you. It's in the word of God. Now you have a choice to make. You're either going to believe that, let the shame and the guilt go, lift your head high and walk with your, your head in the air before your God, knowing that he loves you, knowing that he's not frowning upon you, knowing that you are free, or you are going to continue to not believe that and keep trying to work for it. You're going to allow that clown of guilt and shame to be hanging over you. And guess what? It's easier to allow the guilt and shame to stay. It's harder to make the choice to go, no, no, I'm going to believe this. Here's the thing. If I lived my life. Here, I wrote a little list here. If I lived my life by my feelings, let me tell you a couple of things about me. Number one, I would probably be grossly overweight because I cannot resist the nice bacon and cheese zinger burger. I would have them for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner. Oh, now the new tower stacker. Oh, man. Two zinger patties. Oh, I can't even get my lips around them. They're that big. I lick the paper because the sauce is so nice. Now, if I lived by my feelings, I'd be grossly overweight because I'd be eating three of those a day. How many of you know that would not be good for me? So I can't go out there living by my feelings. <laughs> if I lived by my feelings, I would be divorced and then remarried and then divorced and then remarried and then divorced and then remarried, all to the same woman. Because sometimes things are great and, we're, and those feelings of love are there and oh, we're just so loving. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes I don't feel like that. And sometimes Jackie don't feel like that. But we don't live by our feelings. I can, there's nervous laughter going on here. I, I can tell the difference between that's really funny and gee, that's cutting close. I'd probably be unemployed. Because some days, you know what? I just want to go to the beach. I don't want to work. I don't want to do anything. Some days, you know, so I, I wouldn't hold a job down. If I lived by my feelings, but I don't live by my feelings. What if I live by what I saw? Okay, if I live by what I saw, I'd probably be extremely depressed and flat as I look at the world around me and see how fast it seems to be running backwards. How fast moral society is decaying. When I look, I mean, I, I could get really flat. You flick on the news at night and there's hardly anything on there that makes you smile anymore. I can't even watch the sport anymore and smile because the Tigers are so pathetic. <laughs> and any time something comes on about them, it's always more depression. Oh, we've recruited this 77-year-old guy, you know. Nobody else wanted him, so we'll give him a can of Coke and a pie. It's like, yeah, please, give me something to make me hope for the next season. Anything. I'd probably switch my allegiance to the Melbourne Storm and I'd probably support Queensland if I was going by what I saw. Cut that out, by the way. I don't want anyone to know I said that. That was a joke. Never do that. I'd rarely come out in public if I lived by what I saw because you should see what I see when I look in the mirror in the morning. It's not pretty. It's really not that good looking. You know, I look at the mirror and go, oh my goodness, I, I shouldn't go outside. Nobody deserves to see this. Nobody's been in that much sin this week. It's like a punishment. 
But that's if I live by what I saw. But I don't live by what I see. I can't afford to live by my feelings and I can't afford to live by what I see. Now here's the reality. What I feel and what I see provide me with a base of information which can help me make informed decisions and choices. I don't neglect what I see and I don't neglect what I feel. They're components. They're, they're feeding me information that I bring in that help me make informed decisions and informed choices about my life. But they're not the final say. God's word is the final say to me. And I need to make that choice. Here's the thing. I'll never be all that God says I can be if I don't believe him. I'll never, ever, ever be everything that the word of God tells me I am if I choose to live by my feelings and choose to live by what I can see. I've got to draw a line in the sand at some point and go, I'm making a choice to live by faith and to trust God. God, if you say it, I'm going to believe it. I will never achieve everything in life that I was put here for if I continue to live by what I see and by what I feel. I have to draw a line in the sand and go, enough is enough. It's hard, it's tough. Everything is telling me it's not true, but God, your word is unchangeable, unshakable. I need to make some hard choices here and I need to live by what you have to say. Why do you believe you have eternal life through Jesus? Because you're choosing to believe God. None of you have seen eternal life. But you're choosing to believe God. It's a choice you made. And once you made that choice, you might have some feelings. Some days you might wake up and not even feel saved. Anyone like that? Some days I'll wake up and I just feel plain human. But I know I am. I know God is with me. The more I get to know him, the more I can trust him. The more I trust him, the more I begin to see the outworking of his promises in my life. But it starts with a choice to believe him. Remember, the faith that pleases God is a faith that believes in his existence. It believes in his involvement. And it trusts his word. Amen. Father, I want to thank you, uh, Lord, for this morning again, uh, God. And, and Father, I pray as we walk away from here this morning, God, that Holy Spirit, Take what has been said, convert it into a language that will impact us, that will change us. Father, let us go from here and, and challenge us, Lord, with your word. God, show us those areas where we need to, uh, God, draw that line in the sand, where we need to choose to believe you, where we need to choose to exercise faith above feelings, above what we see, above anything else. God, if we keep our eyes on your word and we keep walking towards that and we keep trusting that, then, Father, that's when we become who we're meant to be. That's when we achieve what we're meant to achieve and we do that which you've called us to, Father. So we thank you for that, God. Don't let the birds of the air take this away. Don't let us get busy with life and forget about your word this morning, God. Father, I pray for your safety upon each of us as we leave this place today, God. Give us fantastic weeks. Uh, Lord, watch over us. God, keep us healthy. Uh, Father, bless us. Uh, and God, use us somehow this week to show somebody out there how great and wonderful you are. In Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you all next week.